Good morning, San Bernabas. Today's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe deep in blood, and his name is the word and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He turns the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Well, can I add my welcome to that already given? It's lovely to see you all. And just to remind you that next Sunday morning, we have our carol service. Um, during the week, um, Alice sent out a beautiful piece of artwork on uh, social media. You should have it on your WhatsApp or as an attachment to an email. Do please forward it to your friends. Do invite them to come along next Sunday morning. Surely everybody in these difficult times needs to hear the good news of Christmas. So do please be praying for that. And uh, do, as I say, ask your friends and relatives. Well, let's... Um, Let's bow and let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word together this morning. Heavenly Father, um, I do pray that you would take my words in all their imperfection and that you would use them to unfold the written word and so lead us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in the coming weeks, um, our attention is once again going to be drawn to the birth of Jesus. And uh, Christians around the world are going to marvel uh, at the account of God entering our world as a human baby. With the eyes of faith, uh, we will see old Simeon standing there in the temple, won't we, holding the baby Jesus in his arms and praising God, saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, and in our hearts, we will know exactly what, what he meant, won't we? Amen? Amen. But I guess for many others, the message of Christmas is going to be practically meaningless. They'll hear the story of a baby born in poverty, uh, working as a carpenter for 30 years uh, in a town no one had ever heard of. Then three short years of public ministry, 
and then a shameful execution, leaving just a handful of frightened followers. And uh, they'll hear these things, <clears throat> but without the eyes of faith, they will say, well, how can any of that possibly be relevant for us? It's a story of weakness and failure. Quite honestly, we've got massive problems at the moment, and we need a far bigger solution. And uh, friends, all too often, that's the end of the discussion, isn't it? Because all too often, Christians have little or nothing to say by way of reply. Years of hostility from outside the church and much confusion within it have silenced all but a faithful few. And the result is that the good news of Christmas is drowned out by the mindless consumption and consumerism of what we call the festive season. <clears throat> but friends, that's not the end of the story. Because none of that is new. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the church was facing exactly the same kind of pressures and challenges. Years of persecution from outside the church and false teaching inside had caused many Christians to go to sleep spiritually. They'd stopped witnessing, they'd retreated into their Christian ghettos, and their lives looked pretty much like everyone else's. And John, the only surviving apostle, was in exile on the island of Patmos. And I guess on the surface, the progress of the gospel seemed to have stalled. And yet that was the moment when God intervened and gave John a message for the church to wake us up. It's the message, of course, recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And the very first words in the book give us the theme. Do you remember? It begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is not primarily a revelation of the future. No, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ showing us things about him that we couldn't possibly know unless God himself revealed them to us. And the result is actually a very powerful correction to the confused and sentimental thinking that so many people have in their minds at Christmas. Now, in order to get our attention, rather than simply giving us a few facts to set the record straight, Jesus is portrayed in this book by a whole series of amazing pictures. So, for example, at the beginning of the book, uh, we see him, don't we, walking amongst seven lampstands. And those, of course, are symbols of seven churches. And it's reminding us that although we can't see the Lord Jesus with our human eyes, by his spirit, Jesus is constantly patrolling the churches on earth. He's here this morning. Then in the next chapters, we see Jesus sharing the throne of God in heaven. Then almost in the next breath, we see him as a lamb, then as a lion, even more majestic than Aslan. But it doesn't stop there, because we then go on and we see him holding in his right hand a sealed scroll, 
which is the book of destiny. And we watch as he breaks the seals on the scroll one by one. Then we see him receiving the worship of heaven, then directing the affairs of men on earth, and then we see him coming in glory to judge the world. And then just when we caught up with that, last week we saw him as a bridegroom coming to claim his bride. Now think about it. God's solution for Christians who've gone to sleep spiritually is this kind of breathtaking series of pictures of Jesus throughout the book that simply will not allow us to get too cozy and comfortable with any one of them. Each of them is adding something different to our understanding of who Jesus is and why it matters. And now this morning, we're invited to look at the vision of the rider on a white horse, another picture of Jesus. So I do hope you've got your Bible open at the passage Marco read, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Notice how it begins. John says, I saw heaven standing open. Now that immediately alerts us to the fact that John is being given an unusually important revelation. A door in heaven has been opened in order to reveal something to him that he couldn't possibly know unless God took the initiative to share it with him. He sees a white horse. He's not terribly interested in the white horse. He's much more interested in the rider on the horse. So just for a moment, imagine with me that these few verses are a painting. And let's consider some of the obvious features of the rider in the picture. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. That's because he sees into every human heart. And his blazing eyes here are reminding us that on Judgment Day there will be no miscarriage of justice because Jesus sees everything perfectly. As it says elsewhere in the New Testament, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Then in verse 12, there are many crowns on his head. We sang about that this morning. And that's because he rules with universal authority. It's a picture, isn't it, of what Jesus taught his disciples after the resurrection. Almost his last words to them were this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here that reality is confirmed to John by the vision of the many crowns on Jesus' head. Then in verse 13, we see the blood-stained robe. And that's because Jesus carries with him the achievement of his death on the cross. You see, that is why he came into the world at Christmas. So friends, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, sentimental about Christmas. And I hope you know that. Because Jesus came into our world to shed his blood for people like me and people like you. And then in verse 14, the armies of heaven are following him. 
They're also riding white horses, and notice that they're clothed in white linen, which last week, of course, we saw was a reward for faithful witnessing. And then lastly, in verse 15, there are three familiar images which we're not going to dwell on this morning. They come straight out of the Old Testament. A sharp sword coming out of his mouth with which to judge the nations. He's got an iron scepter in his hands, Psalm 2, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. Three very well-known symbols from the Old Testament, which all point to the righteous and perfect judgment of Almighty God. But, friends, as I took you very quickly through those verses, did you notice, I wonder, that I left out several highly important details? Because so far we've seen the visual stuff. The rider on the white horse, eyes like blazing fire, robe, bloodstained, the sword in his mouth, the scepter in his hand, treading the winepress of the wrath of God. It is a spectacular series of images of the one who is coming to be our judge. But what was left out? Well, I've not yet mentioned the fact that this rider on the white horse has four names. And these four names are revealing important truths about Jesus that people tend to forget at Christmas. So in verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Then in verse 12, he has a name written on him which nobody knows but himself. In verse 13, his name is the word of God. And in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Four names of Jesus, the rider on the white horse. One name is unknown, the other three are known. So as we look at these four names together, I want to start this morning with the name that is unknown, verse 12. What on earth does it mean that he can have a name that nobody knows but himself? Well, it's not especially difficult to understand, is it? Because, of course, our name reveals our identity. It stands for our identity. And in the Bible, a person's name often reveals their nature. So to take one famous example in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told there that before Mary has her baby, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. In other words, his name reveals important information about him. And we know, don't we, particularly you students, that the name Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord 
saves. So the known names of Jesus reveal and confirm his mission. But the fact that he also has an unknown name means, my dear friends, that he hasn't yet been fully revealed. I wonder if you knew that. However much we do know about Jesus Christ, there is much we do not know. There are depths to the divine human person of Jesus, and there are depths to the finality of his work that we've not yet been told and that we don't yet understand. Only Jesus has the full picture, and only on the last day will we come to know. Elsewhere, the Bible says, doesn't it, that when Jesus returns, we shall see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we shall know him as he knows us. And then, and only then, the secret name, the secrets about him that have not yet been made known, will be revealed to us. So, my dear friends, this Christmas, can I encourage us to remember that Jesus has a name that nobody knows except himself. And it would be wise, I think, for us to exercise humility when we're witnessing to our friends and family. Martin Luther, among others, called this the hiddenness of God. And what he meant by that is that while the things we do know about the person and work of Christ are sufficient for salvation and we don't need anything else, nevertheless, we don't yet know everything. So don't be surprised if there are mysteries about Jesus Christ that you don't yet fully understand. These mysteries belong to the person with the name that nobody knows except himself. So that's the first name of Jesus in our passage, the unknown name. So now we move on from the unknown name to the known names. And the first of these in verse 11 is faithful and true. It says, doesn't it, verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Now, that is a reference to something we've seen earlier in the book, in chapter 3 and verse 14, in the letter of Christ to the church at Laodicea. You don't need to turn to it. We looked at it last week, and you'll remember that in that letter, Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. What does that mean? Well, if we have only a little knowledge of Scripture, will know that the faithfulness of God and of Christ nearly always refers either to his covenant or to his promises. Um, God is faithful to the covenant he's made with his people. God is also faithful to his promises. They will all be fulfilled. Just to make sure we've got this anchored clearly in our minds, keep a finger in Revelation, and please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me tell you that when we call Jesus faithful and true, it means that 
It is in Christ that God's covenant has been established with us. And it is through Christ that all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. So I hope you're with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. The apostle says this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, dear friends, all the promises of God are going to be perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Now, I think you know your Old Testament well enough to know that it is crammed full, isn't it, of promises of salvation and also threats of judgment. And these threats of judgment and these promises of salvation are repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament without ever actually being completely fulfilled. And as a result, we often find in the Old Testament the people of God crying out, saying, How long, Lord? How long before you're going to fulfill the promises and the threats you have made? And God's response is, be patient. One day, all the threats and all the promises are going to be fulfilled, and they're going to be fulfilled in Christ, because he is faithful and true. Well, come back with me, please, to Revelation 19 now, and let's move on to the next name, which you will find in verse 13, which says that his name is the Word of God. Now, Christmas every year reminds us, doesn't it, of this particular title or name for Jesus. Because in most churches, the opening verses of John's Gospel are read at some point or other during the Christmas season. And we will hear again these marvelous words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we see in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now Christians, of course, are very familiar with this description of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Word of God. But again, we need to ask, don't we, what does it mean to say that Jesus is God's Word? Well, just as you and I reveal ourselves to one another by speaking, so God has revealed himself by speaking, and he's done it supremely in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, as well, of course, as in the words of Scripture. So to say that Jesus Christ is the Word of God is to say that he is the final revelation 
of God. Yes, we've just seen that there is an unknown name of Jesus Christ. Not everything about God has yet been revealed. But what has been revealed has come in its fullness to us in Jesus Christ. He is the word of God made flesh. And in particular, please notice this. We notice in verse 13 that he whose name is the word of God is wearing a blood-stained robe. And it seems to me that because we find these two things in the very same sentence, in the very same verse, that we need to hold them together in our thinking. It's reminding us that it is on the cross where his blood was shed and sacrificed for sinners like us that he fully revealed both the goodness and the severity of God. Both the love and the judgment of God are revealed in their fullness at the cross of Christ. You see, his judgment is revealed in his determination to judge sinners like us who deserve to be judged. And his mercy is revealed in his determination to bear the judgment in our place as our substitute. Jesus is the word of God. If we want to know what God is like, we need to listen to Jesus and we need to look at Jesus, especially as we see him on the cross. There is no more complete revelation of the person of Almighty God than you see in Christ crucified. So are you with me so far? First, Jesus has an unknown name. Second, he is called Faithful and True. Thirdly, he is the word of God. And then fourthly, in verse 16, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now that is the most spectacular, I think, of all his names and titles. It's uh, widely celebrated in Christian art and music, perhaps most famously in Handel's Messiah. Earthly kings and rulers and emperors are often very conscious of their own personal authority. And with sadly only a few exceptions, they become intoxicated with their own position and corrupted by their own power and fame. And only Jesus Christ actually can cut them down to size. Kings and emperors and rulers they might increase their territories. They might oppress different people groups, as we see all around the world today. They might demand the total allegiance of their subjects. And there are plenty of countries where that's happening today. But there is one enthroned in heaven as the king of kings who laughs at their pride. Psalm 2 tells us, that he scoffs at their childish ambitions 
and he rebukes them in his anger. And to worldly rulers like I've just described, God says, I have established my king in Zion on my holy hill. Now, I wonder uh, if you remember that the apostles quoted from Psalm 2 very soon after the day of Pentecost. It's an important reference. You'll find this in the book of Acts chapter 4. Please turn there with me now. Acts chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me tell you that the context here is that the apostles Peter and John had been forbidden by the Jewish authorities to do any more preaching about Jesus. So when they were dismissed from the court, uh, they rushed off to find their brothers and sisters in Christ And the first thing they did was to organize a prayer meeting. Acts chapter 4. What did they say in their prayers? Verse 24. Acts 4 verse 24. They said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And now they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, they pray. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Unfortunately, their will prevailed and Jesus was crucified before he could finish his mission. Is that what it says in your Bible? No, it isn't, is it? What did they say? Verse 28. They, Herod and Pontius Pilate, did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. Do you see it? The most powerful rulers in the world in those days thought they were in control. They thought they were running the show, that they'd put a stop to everything that Jesus Christ came into the world to do. But the truth is that all the time, they were doing the will of God without even realizing it. I find it fascinating that already at this very early stage of the Christian church in Acts chapter 4, Believers were recognizing Jesus Christ as the Lord of human lords and the King of human kings and kingdoms. And here's the point. That this vision of Jesus Christ enthroned by God the Father, enthroned at his right hand, is seen only with the eye of faith which sees heaven opened, which looks through the open door in heaven and sees the rider on the white horse. You see, we can't see it with our earthly eyes, but it is an awesome reality that is apparent to the eyes of faith. And it means, doesn't it, that the same Jesus, who on the very first Christmas day lay as a helpless baby in a manger, 
is now already reigning at the right hand of Almighty God in heaven. And one day, he will be universally acknowledged and universally acclaimed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, my dear friends, I wonder if in our meditations this Christmas, we could remember for ourselves the fourfold name of Jesus. First, the unknown name, because there's much about Jesus we still don't know. Second, the name faithful and true, because he is the fulfillment of all the promises of Almighty God. And thirdly, the word of God, because he is the full and final revelation of God. And then, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because all authority in heaven and on earth are his. Now, friends, as we close, I want to ask, do you believe these tremendous realities about Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God and the perfect revelation of God and the ruler of the kingdom of God? Do you believe these realities? Is this the Jesus that you know and you worship? Can I suggest it is a question we all need to ask ourselves, especially at Christmas, because there are many, many things that hinder our seeing these realities of Christ. For a start, there's our, our own sin and self-centeredness. That gets in the way. There is our busyness, so that we don't actually have time to stop and think. Then there are the endless speculations at the moment in the media about COVID-19 and the horrors that might follow. And there is, of course, our own unbelief. There is, can I say it, even the glittering tinsel of Christmas. All these things can conceal the reality of Christ from us. But when heaven has been opened to the eye of faith, and when our own eyes have been opened to look through that door in heaven, we will see Jesus as he is. And we will bring to him the homage and the obedience that are due to his name as the one who is faithful and true, and the word of God, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a moment in silent reflection on the names of the rider on the white horse, the unknown name, faithful and true, the word of God, the King of kings. Let us bring him now in the quietness of our hearts, our worship and our faith. We'll be quiet for a moment and then I'll close in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we humbly pray that you would grant to us the open eye of faith, that we might grasp realities that are not apparent to the eyes of our body, but which are more real even than the material world. Grant that over this Christmas season, we might grow in faith and in our understanding of you and bring the homage and obedience that are due to you. And we ask it for your great name's sake.